Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about the meaning of science fiction. I'm Annalee Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction. And I'm Charlie Jane Anders. I'm a science fiction writer who thinks a lot about science. This podcast is going to be the two of us geeking out about books, movies, TV shows, comics, and why it all matters. And you'll be able to find us every two weeks on iTunes, Stitcher, and anywhere else that fine podcasts are made available. We're going to geek out this week about something that we have a lot of feelings about, which is the first season of Star Trek Discovery. Yeah, I have so many feelings about it. My God. I have several isics for your thoughts, Emily. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Um, I've always wondered where that saying came from. Um, And we we learned all about that. Uh, This was a show that people had been anticipating for a really long time. Star Trek has not been on television for how long now? Since 2005, the end of Star Trek Enterprise. Yeah, and which was also not an incredibly great moment in Star Trek history. And actually a lot of the stuff that happened in Enterprise kind of came back and became themes in Discovery too. Yeah, I mean, certainly the USS Defiant that crosses over to the Mirror Universe is a thing from Star Trek Enterprise that gets picked up in Discovery. Some of the other ideas kind of get touched on. Uh, there was. I was actually surprised by how much of Enterprise there was in this show. Yeah, I mean, I felt like I had to go back and actually rewatch some Enterprise episodes to be fully up to speed on um, what was going on in the Mirror Universe. Mm-hmm. Um, so before we start talking about the themes in this series, which I think are actually really fascinating, although sometimes bloopers as well, let's just talk about what the hell happened? Um, we had this show. Uh, it came out on CBS's all-access streaming service, which immediately pissed fans off. It was on the streaming service that you had to pay for, and there was literally nothing else on the streaming service that people were interested in. So it automatically kind of alienated its viewers. And yet, a ton of us watched it. So, t- Charlie, what what happened? Sum it up for us. So here's a spoiler warning for anybody who hasn't seen the first season of Star Trek Discovery. You might want to stop listening now. But for the rest of us... So it's about 10 years before Star Trek, the original series, and uh, the Klingons have become radicalized by this leader named Tukuvma, who leads them in a war against the Federation. And on the other side, the Federation side, uh, a woman named Michael Burnham turns out to be instrumental in helping to start that war through some mistakes that she makes and ends up stuck on a ship with kind of a rogue captain, Gabriel Lorca, played by the always going rogue Jason Isaacs. And <laughs> So, okay. So then the thing that's fascinating, I think, for a lot of us watching it who are science nerds is that this ship, even though it's a ship from the past of the series that we've been watching, it has this technology, uh, a spore drive, which is made with spores. It's just what it sounds like mm-hmm. as advertised. And it can allow the ship to travel through the mycelial network, which is some kind of timey-wimey, subspacey-wacy place that unites all, seems like all universes, all spaces, maybe even the living and the dead. Um, It's just wacky. This ship's spore drive travels on a network of mycelium that's spread across the entire galaxy. But what it means is that the ship can teleport. The entire ship can teleport. 
any place they want, including apparently into other universes, including the universe where Spock wore a beard. Right. Um, <laughs> it's the magic of mushrooms. It is the magic of mushrooms. And um, of course, Dr. Stamets, who is the character that runs the science lab, is named after an actual scientist who studies mushrooms. So that's kind of great. And I'm sure that the real life Stamets is wondering why people are keep emailing him and things like that. <laughs> um, so we take this weird left turn mm-hmm. or... I mean, not a left turn, whatever kind of turn you take to get into the mirror universe. Mm -hmm. And then it felt like we spent a million years in the mirror universe, but how it was only like three episodes. It was like five or six episodes, I think. It was basically almost the whole back half of the season, except for like the kind of tail end where we're back and then the war is getting even worse. And once we were in the mirror universe, it sort of turns out that nobody is what they appear to be. You know, Lorca is actually from the mirror universe. Um... Ash Tyler is actually a Klingon undercover agent who's sort of like wrapped in a human burrito or whatever. <laughs> he's like a Klingduckin. Yeah, uh, he's like a he's like a Klingon wrapped in a human wrapped in a Klingon or I don't know. Yeah, you're he, right. It's, yeah. it's complicated. And then Paul Stamets kind of turns out to have an evil twin in the Murray universe who's been influencing things all along. Right. And, and we actually saw him in the first half of the season uh, in a mirror, which right. is the first hint. And a lot of us and a lot of fans said, oh, I think we're heading toward the Murray right. universe. Yeah. Yeah. And nobody has a beard in the Murray universe. Yeah. It's really what disappointing. the hell? Like, I was... No eye patches, no beards. Yeah. It was, it was, well, and I mean, that kind of echoes the way the Klingons were also kind of changed up for this show. And um, I actually, you know, people really complained about the kind of H.R. Geiger look for the Klingons. I, I didn't mind it. I didn't think it was bad. They I looked mean, streamlined. They looked yeah. kind of like, you know, yeah. They looked weird. I mean, and I will also say I was not upset by the way that the Klingon language sounded either. Um, they were speaking in Klingon. That's great. Um, I... I don't know why people were so pissed off about that. It was a little bit like too slow and breathy. Like it would take them like a little pause between every single phrase that they said. They were kind of like they'd been hanging out with Shatner so much that they'd kind of taken on <laughs> Shatner's mannerisms. Yeah, no, there was there was a lot of sort of it was oratory. It was, there was a Klingon lot of oratory. oratory. Um, and so and when we go into the mirror universe, that's yeah, I mean, that kind of really becomes the whole point of the season. Um, we we stop kind of focusing on the war and we start focusing on the difference between the Terran Empire and the Federation. Right. And so it's less a war between humans and Klingons and more a war between these two versions of of the Federation, of our characters' lives. Yeah, I mean, the ending is really about whether the Federation is willing to become like the Terran Empire in order to defeat the Klingons and then... Obviously, we're going to talk about that in a second. Charlie, what did you feel like were some of the themes in this whole arc that we got? Because it was, unlike kind of previous Star Trek uh, series, it was not episodic. It was really a soap opera. There was a big arc throughout the season. It was very serialized. And one of the major themes of Star Trek is looking at what it means to be human and what is human nature. And this was unusual. This show is different in that the main character, Michael Burnham, is sort of the Kirk and the Spock of the show. You're not Vulcan. I was raised as one. After my parents were killed at a Vulcan outpost. Sarah and his human wife, Amanda, took you in. Your story's well documented. He believed I could serve as humanity's potential. 
How could he put that kind of pressure on a child? But not everyone agreed with him, a group of logic extremists. They didn't want humans in their culture. Yeah. She is a uh, she is a human, but she was raised by Vulcans and she's very Vulcan identified. And a lot of the show is her struggling with her humanity in a different way than we used to see Spock struggle with his. And in the end, she kind of has reached a new balance of her humanity and her Vulcan nature. How do you think, like, how do you see her struggle as being different from Spock's? Because they are siblings. Um, They have a very similar kind of, you know, um, hybrid identity. But what's different about her? I mean, I think it's interesting because she actually has an easier time repressing her emotions than Spock seems to. Like, Spock is constantly struggling with his emotions on the original series is always bubbling up and we kind of hear over and over that Vulcans have this like deep passionate core that they they have to repress and she seems to have done a really good job of repressing her feelings because she's had so much trauma and because she's like kind of shut down in a lot of ways mm-hmm. and she's surrounded by all these other characters who also either aren't human or have a very weird relationship to their humanity and so there's no Kirk or McCoy around her to kind of be the foil who's like the clearly human character to set her off. Right. Yeah, because if anyone is her foil, I almost want to say it's Saru. Does a little it, bit. I yeah. mean, I mean I know Lorca is also supposed to be kind of her foil. Um, but Saru is um he's known her for a while. Mm-hmm. They served together on the Shinjo. And he feels betrayed by her. And so she has to kind of re-earn his trust and I guess his species is the fearful of death species. <laughs> Thank you, Star Trek, for giving us yet another species that's like the listener people, but now it's the tentacled fear people. The threat ganglia people. Like, <laughs> you know, Star Trek mm, is full of races ganglia. that basically have like one trait. It's yeah. just like we're empathic or mm-hmm. we're angry. Or, or we don't have any emotions like know. the Vulcans. Um, I, although I do think that this show actually complicates that a little bit. I feel like these characters have intersectional identities um, because Saru is the last of his kind. He's, or one of the last of his kind, it seems like we don't know for sure, Um, but he's certainly the only one of his kind in Starfleet. But he's cautious where Burnham is um, quick to action. Mm -hmm. I I mean, he's very dubious of her. Like Mm -hmm. he, so I I don't know if you buy that idea that that he's kind of her foil, but I guess Tilly is also kind of her foil in a way because Tilly is the most... She's a human, but she's also not, she doesn't act like a human, really. She seems like she's a little, she doesn't really understand human socializing, (laughs) which I can relate to. Um, So what were some other themes you saw in the episode? So one of the things that I thought was interesting is just sort of bouncing off what you were saying about the fact that there's no kind of Kirk character, there's no bones, there's none of these people who are kind of iconically human. And we have on the bridge... All of these, like, they're basically NPCs. Like, we never meet them. We see them in every episode, pretty much. But there's, like, the lady with the weird tech in her face. And then there's another lady with, like, a strange piece of tech on her head. Um, There's a couple of other characters that are just kind of hanging around and doing stuff that also don't seem necessarily human. It's really hard to tell. Um, And as we were just saying, Saru is one of the main characters. He's an alien. Um, Stamets is like half mushroom by the end of the show. Um, and, you know, and, and of course, um, Burnham is struggling with, you know, being a Vulcan identified human, which is a a really interesting idea. And I think 
gets explored really well in some ways. Um, and then, of course, there's Ash, Tyler, slash Voke, who's like clingy, humey guy, clinging human. Wait, what is it? Cling duckin. Cling He's the cling duckin. Um, so I think what's interesting is that we we've kind of left humanity behind. And one of the hallmarks of the Federation in this series is that it's kind of post-human in a way that it wasn't, I think, in the original series and not even in Next Generation, even though that's always been the credo of the Federation. I feel like now we're actually seeing it with our own eyes. This is a really diverse group in terms of just including everyone. So I liked, I actually really liked that theme of, um, you know, not having sort of a human versus alien or human versus machine. Instead, as we were discussing earlier, it really becomes a show about the Federation versus the Terran Empire. The Terrans appear to be the antithesis of us in every way. They're an oppressive, racist, xenophobic culture that dominates all known space. They're ruled by a faceless emperor. The Terran culture appears to be predicated upon an unconditional hatred and rejection of anything and everything other. The alien other in this show is, is the Terran Empire. It's, I mean, the Klingons also, but by the end, I feel like we're starting, the Klingons have become kind of us, and especially with Ash Tyler's plot, um, I feel like, as horribly as it was handled, and we should probably talk about that, um, you know, that by, by the end, it feels like the Klingons are, are more us than the uh, Terran Empire humans. I think it's more just that the Klingons are this kind of unreasoning threat that we can't just talk to. We have to defeat them somehow. And the question is how we can defeat them without compromising our values, because the obvious easy way out is to follow the Terran Empire recipe of just like genocide and ruthless crushing of any resistance. And obviously that's like a path that we flirt with towards the end of this season. Um, and in the beginning, because that's the Vulcan hello. Right. And so that's one of the other things that I thought was so interesting in this series um, when we're sort of in the setup phase of the series and we're kind of learning about the world. And the Vulcans are dicks. They are way dickier than I've ever seen them. They're actually kind of bad guys. They were dicks in Enterprise as well. I think this is something that this show carries on from Enterprise. Like, mm-hmm. they were explicitly dicks in a lot of Enterprise. Yeah, I guess that's true. And the Vulcan true. Hello isn't actually, it's not wholesale genocide. It is a massive preemptive strike mm-hmm. to try and discourage, you know, further right okay so but it is it is a dick move it's like the ultimate dick move yeah and it's it's true it's not as bad as blowing up the entire planet which is kind of what they're planning to do at the end and don't do because you know they have a change of heart and decide not to burn an entire freaking planet down yeah so let's talk a little bit about the ending yeah Um, the ending oh my god so in the end Like I said, they're struggling to find a way to defeat the Klingons that doesn't compromise their values. And I feel like we get an ending that's a little bit unearned. But part of why the ending feels unearned to me is also a lack of moral gravity in the show. Mm -hmm. And particularly things like the character of Culber being killed and that being kind of dealt with a little bit and then swept under the rug. Like super swept under the rug? Because, yeah, I mean, wouldn't Stamets just be... I mean, he'd be freaked out and upset. I get that he's like an off, you know, a Starfleet officer and he knows how to put his feelings aside, but 
he has this kind of moment in the hallway with Ash Tyler where Ash kind of shows up and is like, well, I'm really sorry about killing your husband. And then he's just like, ah, whatever. Like, he just kind of smirks at him. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, and I feel like that's, I mean, he has one magic mushroom trip where he gets to talk to his dead boyfriend for like a minute and they listen to opera together and it's like, oh, okay, all better now. And I feel like that was, that felt really cheap after... Yeah how kind of unnecessary that death felt to begin with. It felt like a death that was just thrown in for shock value. And I thought I wanted it to pay off somehow. I also feel like a lot of the ending has to do with the, the consequences of making terrible choices. And a lot of those consequences do feel kind of swept under the rug. Like Michael Burnham has to kill people in the mirror universe. And we never really, we hear her kind of regretting that, but it doesn't become like a major thing. The toll that it takes on you being a part of this, terrible war is kind of mentioned she but then, eats one of her friends right she eats she eats one of the kelpians and like it's all kind of dealt with but then it's kind of you know thrown aside in order to focus on the the big plot issue and so i feel like the lack of moral gravity kind of robs the ending of any of its weight but also there is the problem with laurel which i'd love to hear you talk about yeah, so Laurel is the character who, for a lot of the season, we think has been Ash Tyler's captor, torturer, rapist. And by the end, once we've had our Kling Duckin moment, um, it turns out actually she and Voke were like boyfriend and girlfriend. And so what Ash Ty- what Tyler was remembering, as sexual trauma was actually like Klingon fun times and somehow, which I could actually, we could have like a whole episode about how incredibly weird it was that they turned like PTSD from sexual trauma into just like, oh yeah, that was just like a mistake. Um, Because it felt like those scenes were, those scenes were really powerful. And just to turn those scenes into just, oh, well, that was just some weird thing. Um, you know, those scenes where he's being raped, um, you know, that that seemed like a really problematic way to deal with it. So I guess there's this moment where we're supposed to think, actually, Laurel's not so bad because it turned out it wasn't really rape and torture. And then she becomes kind of a weirdly sympathetic character. Um, Burnham enlists her aid in the final moments of the show where she basically hands her the detonator that they were going to use that she and... um, Giorgio we're going to use to blow up the Klingon homeworld through some kind of weird plate tectonics mumbo jumbo. Klingons respond to strength. Use the fate of Kronos to bend them to your will. Preserve your civilization rather than watch it be destroyed. But I am no one. You once told Volk you didn't want the mantle of leadership. It's time for you to leave the shadows. The entire ending depends on a couple of things that are wacky and improbable, which is one, that we can actually trust Laurel with this instrument, but two, that she can actually then convince all the Klingon houses to trust her um, either not to blow things up or that they're actually going to buy the idea that this dumb iPad that she's holding can actually blow the planet up. So she becomes this kind of um, MacGuffin, as we were saying earlier. You know, she's just like the character that kind of comes in and saves the day at the end. And we like it because it represents, you know, a lady warrior, you know, taking over. And so it's kind of nice balance for Michael Burnham, who's also, you know, lady warrior. But at the end, I think the thing that is most 
kind of problematic about what's done to Laurel is that I think it's supposed to seem like a happy ending, even though her goal is to unite all the houses of the Klingon empire or future empire under a kind of racist nationalism. Like that's her credo is racist nationalism. And she's just going to get them all together by threatening them with this bomb and also leading them forward with this, um, you know, promise of racial purity. So it's a weird ending. Yeah. And I think that we're supposed to think that maybe she's seen where that racist purity idea leads to because it led to them fighting amongst themselves instead of being unified. But we don't really get to see enough of that to have it stick. And also, you know, she could just conclude that, well, it didn't work before, but once I'm in charge, I can make it work, which seems like that might actually be right. I'm also wondering what happened to that detonator and like, is it it still there hundreds of years later? Is it the way that all the Klingon emperors keep power? Does Gowron have like that iPad with the little detonator (laughs) button in like Star Trek The Next Generation? Like the holy detonator of Kalas. Yeah. And it's like, does he have to keep upgrading? Like, you know, because it's like, okay, well, we moved the detonator over onto like the iPad Mini 4 and like now we've discontinued that. So it's like, you know, he has to keep getting more Federation updates, you know, like, all right. You know, this up uh, this update like wrecked my detonator app. <laughs> I forgot my iTunes password again. <laughs> oh crap. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's probably exactly what's what's really going on. Um and so I, I also want to say one more thing about Laurel because I, I guess I have a lot of thoughts about Laurel, but I feel like there was actually, despite complaining about the ending, I kind of liked the love triangle that we finally got to see in action where Tyler with his pretty eyes and his little snacky face is sort of like looking at both Burnham and Laurel at this moment when, you know, they're trying to convince Laurel to take power and she's like, I don't know. And he's like, no, you're awesome. And you're super cool. And he says a bunch of other stuff. That's, that's a little bit more profound than that. But basically you realize at that moment, wow, he, really loves her and like these women have both been his lovers he, he has good taste in women he likes strong women who are leaders and you, I felt for the first time at that moment maybe too late that this really had been a kind of a love triangle plot that had been unfolding throughout the season I kind of wished I could have seen a bit more of that but I liked that moment I liked that beat and I liked the fact that um Laurel got the guy in the end. I mean, not like Michael wanted him anymore, really, but Michael was sad, you know? He was cute. He was kind of nice, I guess, except for the whole beating and killing thing. Um, But that wasn't his fault. That was... That was his... Whatever, that was the Vogue side of things or whatever. I don't know. Well, or it was like him struggling with the Vogue side or I don't know, whatever. But let's talk about the cliffhanger, which really annoyed the crap out of me. It felt like gratuitous fan service. Like it felt like they hadn't already given us enough fan service with Harry Mudd and the Mirror Universe and all this other stuff. So now, so basically the end of the season is that randomly for no reason, they run into the USS Enterprise and we know that Captain Pike and also Mr. Spock, Burnham's like stepbrother or whatever, are on that ship and everybody's going to all meet each other and they're going to have a giant luau together in season two. I feel like with something like Star Trek, there's really two kinds of fan. Uh, There's the fans who want 
the show to keep returning to its origins. Basically, they want to see episodes that make reference to stuff that we had in the original series. And I mean, certainly that's the J.J. Abrams movies, right? Like those are just completely, you know, let's just go back to the origins and give everybody all the ice cream that they already ate back in the late 1960s. And there's other fans who I think are the opposite, who really want to see Star Trek go in a new direction and want to see it go into the future. Um, And one of the things that's interesting about Discovery is that um, when it was being first conceived by Brian Fuller, who was the original showrunner, it was going to be, um, each season was going to bring us further into the future. So we were going to start around this time period where Michael Burnham is hanging out and doing stuff. And then maybe by season five, we would be past Star Trek Voyager and into the future. And I feel like once Fuller left, it became much more about how can we just keep revisiting the past over and over, which which is what Enterprise had already done. And so I feel like there's this tug of war between like you said, the fan service fans, the ones who are like, I want to see the Enterprise. What was going on on the Enterprise? And then there's people like me who are like, I really don't care what's happening on the Enterprise. <laughs> like, I love the Enterprise, but I've like seen it a million times. I'm going to see it again in the movies. I want to know what's happening elsewhere in this universe. And I want to know what's happening on Discovery. Like Discovery has this awesome spore drive. Like I want to go in that direction. And so I feel like the show has tried to split the difference between those two kinds of fans, the ones who want to return to the original text, the original show, and the ones who really want to go definitely where no one has gone before. And kind of, I don't know, what do you think? Do you feel like it worked? Did it not work? I feel like it worked at times, and then at times it felt like it was kind of disappearing a little bit too much into fan service, and that ending definitely felt too fan service-y. My feeling is always that the more we end up revisiting things that we've seen before, the smaller the universe appears, the more it seems like a tiny small town versus like a huge wide open universe where anything can happen. If we have to just keep meeting Harry Mudd over and over again. I know. You know, and I think Harry Mudd actually is a character best left in the 60s. He's like, his big thing is that he's a kind of a crazy swashbuckling misogynist. And I feel like that was a probably pretty good in the 60s, but not something that we need to revisit in the 21st century. I also think that a lot of fans of Star Trek are really fans of the next generation rather than the original series. And it's weird that we keep getting shout outs to the original series instead of the next generation when I feel like the people who grew up in the original series are, are an aging fan base that perhaps are not really the people who are going to be most excited about Discovery. And, you know, maybe instead of getting constant like callbacks to the Enterprise and Spock and Kirk and like the Mirror Universe, we should be seeing more of the, you know, the Borg or Q. Q. (laughs) That would not be, that might not be great either. But I really agree with you. I mean, it's funny because I grew up with Next Generation. Like that was my Star Trek. That was my first Star Trek. I mean, I did see the movies when I was really little, um, but I didn't know about the, I didn't grow up with the original series. Um, uh, Maybe you you did. I I think you grew up with Doctor Who, so it's all completely, (laughs) I mean, the original series was in syndication when I was a kid, when I was really little, and I remember seeing it, and it was just like, it was this super colorful, exciting show where they were like punching lizard men every other episode, and you know, <laughs> and blowing up computers with like logic puzzles, and it was just, it was a really fun show when I was a little kid, but I do feel like 
Next Generation and also Deep Space Nine had more of a formative influence on me, you know, in terms of like what I grew up with. Yeah, same here. And I and I agree with you. I feel like the fans who are going to be watching this now, like that is their Star Trek is like TNG, Deep Space Nine, maybe even Voyager. Um, and, and Enterprise is another kind of blip. Like it was kind of that was another effort to kind of go back to the original story. So one of the things that Discovery did well in terms of calling back to things that we like about Star Trek or that are kind of endemic to the Star Trek universe is that it didn't shy away from touching on a lot of political issues. And, you know, this is something that the show's been doing, you know, since the very beginning. And I think one of the big issues which we've kind of been talking about already that is really threaded throughout the show is xenophobia and also the rise of kind of uh, racist nationalism because the Klingons and the Terran Empire are both racist. They're, you know, they're into pure the purity of the species that they're part of and destroy everybody else. Yeah, and I think that the, another way that it sort of touched on really important political issues is the question of wartime atrocities and how yeah. willing you are to commit atrocities like torture or genocide or, you know, all those other kinds of things that we see in this series in order to win a conflict with some other force that you've defined as like your opposite or whatever. Yeah. And I feel like, I mean, especially, I mean, those two political issues obviously go together because of course you're willing to torture and genocide other creatures partly because you don't think of them as being human or a person right you know the the klingons aren't really people and the klingons certainly don't think of the humans as really being people um although i guess laurel is now gonna have to perhaps grapple with that because now her boyfriend is a human i i feel like we kind of had this moment in early in the season when um you know stamets and the science uh, crew are being told, okay, just repurpose everything you're doing and turn it into a weapon. And it's this kind of ho- horrible moment where we're like, okay, we're not in normal Star Trek universe. Yeah. And, the, and then they're just torturing the poor tardigrade and it's just, it's horrible. The mega tardigrade. I love And it's that. actually kind of worse in a way than watching a person be tortured. Although I think there is some torture of people later in the season. Well, Stamets is kind of being tortured. Yeah. And then of course there's the agonizers, which are, you know, I mean, the, the entire Terran, yeah. Terran empire. Also Laurel, like what the hell? <laughs> they torture her. I mean, you know, and even though they're not supposed to be torturers, they they do beat her up. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, even before Giorgio beats her up, she's been kind of mis- mistreated. Yeah. And I think that like what this season wants you to think that it's about is about rediscovering those values that we had been in danger of losing. Like it starts out with Burnham being willing to cross a line and mutinying against her captain in order to cross that line. And then the end of the season, she mutinies in order to not cross a line and it's supposed to be that she's kind of reasserting the the standards the the moral pr- principles that they have been kind of slowly throwing away and that's part of why again i feel it's a little bit unearned in the end i feel like we don't get enough of why those principles are important or like the cost of the the emotional and yeah, of psychological cost of losing them and just what it means to lose them. I feel like we kind of skate over that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, we see the Klingons, we see the Terran empire and those are kind of stand-ins for how terrible it is when you lose those values. And I mean, I did kind of love the moment when 
the Federation folks meet the, um, I guess, the terrorist group in that, that's fighting against the Terran Empire, or the, I guess you could call them insurrectionaries or rebels or whatever. Um, from the point of view of the Terran Empire, they are terrorists. Uh, but they are a, div- a diverse group. They are um, very intersectional, lots of aliens and humans uh, intertwingling. And, um, and so part of what the values of the Federation are or one of the values of the Federation is kind of this diversity, infinite diversity and infinite combination, which I guess is actually, isn't that a Vulcan? I think it's a Vulcan thing. It's actually something that Gene Roddenberry came up with because he wanted to sell some merchandise with it. But (laughs) it is a Vulcan saying. apparently. Even though in this series, the Vulcans are kind of racists and they're kind of, they're, they kind of have a big stick up their butt about like only one human child can go to our Vulcan science place yeah which was troops really interesting that it turned out that like sarek kind of chose spock over michael burnham and it gets back to the thing we were talking about before about how the vulcans have this like barely repressed passion and anger and like emotion that they're just keeping down through sheer force of will and that's sort of what humans are like too because we're constantly in the original series we're constantly being asked are humans still barbaric? They just We just emerged from barbarism. We were having a terrible war just 100 years earlier when the Vulcans finally showed up in Star Trek First Contact, uh, the, the movie, we kind of see some of that. And that idea of whether humans are capable of being more than barbarians is something that obsesses the original series. And I think that, you know, this show, in the end, showed a, a lot of the limitations of a prequel because... They have to leave things in a way that doesn't contradict the original series. And in the original series, we know that there was a war with the Klingons 10 years earlier, but things are not settled. And indeed, the first time we meet the Klingons, Kirk is preparing to go to war with them again. And the only reason we don't go to war with them is because the Organians, like these weird beardy dudes in beards, in robes, (laughs) suddenly, you know, intervene, beard guys, (laughs) suddenly intervene and put a stop to it. But that's the kind of status quo that, Discovery has to leave in place, so the war has to end, but it has to not be resolved. Right. And so So, they're kind of hamstrung by by having to be a prequel. Yeah, I mean, they are, and it kind of prevents the show from being the kind of Star Trek that we all know and love, where humans have kind of gotten over their barbarism, or at least a little bit of their barbarism. Um, I'm sure Q would point out, as he does many times, including in, um, you know, the Next Generation's kind of premiere episode, uh, that humans are still barbaric. Um, And I think Discovery, one of the things that was really interesting about it, but also frustrating, was that it is a show about what humans are like when they're right on the cusp of kind of losing what we're calling barbarism um, and, and kind of emerging as a social democracy in space. So they're kind of losing the last vestiges of the urge to commit war crimes, the urge to torture, the urge to be um, nationalist racists. Um, and they're, you know, gra- gradually emerging as some kind of, um, you know, alliance of, of different groups that are trying to do things, um, yeah, in a democratic way. Uh Although we never see voting on Star Trek, which is kind of funny. Um, that would be great. Maybe next season there'll be an election. Um, but yeah, so I feel like Discovery had, you know, had a lot of flaws. I'm still going to watch the next season. I want to know what happens. Even though I'm annoyed about the Enterprise showing up, I'm down. 
I'm totally down too. I wish that they hadn't done it as a prequel. I wish they'd found another way to do it. I feel like they pinned medals on everybody as a kind of like victory lap that again was a little bit unearned. You know what? I, I do not give season one of Discovery a medal. I'm going to give it I'll give it a good sportsman ribbon. Yeah, I think a good sportsman ribbon. I think, you know, it's still a good, in the race. good sports creature. It's still in it. You know, I'm still rooting for it. Yeah, I'm still rooting for it too. I think it's um, it continues to be interesting. It continues to comment on kind of the same issues that Star Trek has always commented on. And I feel like, you know, I, I actually want to see more Klingon action. You've been listening to Our Opinions Are Correct with Charlie Jane Anders and Annalie Newitz, which is available every two weeks wherever fine podcasts can be found. And thanks so much to our engineer at Women's Audio Mission, Veronica Simonetti, and thanks to Chris Palmer for our theme music. 